0: why does theology need to listen to science what does it have to say about the beginning of the world or the end what happens when we pray is there intelligent life on other planets or this planet and what's it like to be both a scientist and a theologian welcome to talking theology a podcast of crammer hall durham where we explore Big questions and look to join the dots between theology church and the world i'm your host philip Pluming, and my guest today is professor david wilkinson principal of saint john's college here in durham david has phds in both astrophysics and theology and is an ordained methodist minister and our question is why does theology need science thank you for listening i hope you enjoy the show David, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you. Um, David, we're thinking today about the relationship between science and theology. Yes. But before we get into that more generally, tell us a little bit about your journey
1: in both those kind of disciplines and, and what's that look like for you? Well, I didn't become a Christian until I was the age of 17. I'd grown up within the church, but faith for me didn't become real until just before coming to university. And uh, that was a result of uh, an interest in a certain girl in a certain Christian youth group, going to that church to try and go out with her, and I never did. But I did find something amongst those young people that actually intrigued me. Secondly, I heard about Jesus through the music of Bob Dylan. I was a great and still am Bob Dylan fan, and he went through his Christian phase. The third thing was I, I read the New Testament for myself. I'd never done that before. And I was intrigued by this man, Jesus. And so uh, just before, in the May before going to university, I made a commitment to Christian faith. And then I found myself at university and I'd already chosen to do physics. Now that wasn't because I was the type of child who built a telescope at the age of four (laughs) or anything like that. Uh, To be honest, Philip, it was because I was really interested in cricket and I knew that I needed a subject at university that I could do quickly and therefore give me lots of time to play cricket. Sounds sensible. Uh, Very much so. I was never that good at cricket as it happened, but I was intrigued more and more by physics, and uh, part of it was that uh, you do this strange subject called relativity and another strange subject called quantum theory. Um, And then my Christian faith, I think, looking back on it, actually it worked something like this, that as I was learning more about the God of creation through Jesus Christ... So what God had done in creation became more and more interesting to me. It's like if you know the artist, then what they've done becomes really interesting. And so a number of these influences began to really excite me about the nature of the natural world and physics in particular. So therefore, those two things have kind of been always
0: part of your journey together. And um, the narrative we often hear, David, is that science and kind of theology are in conflict that's the kind of conflict narrative I, I know you take a different perspective on that tell me what's insufficient about that conflict narrative and, and what you think a more fruitful way of looking at the relationship
1: looks like I, I think it doesn't work in history it's never worked in my own life it doesn't work in most people that I know uh, it's a it's a lovely media image created by a man called Thomas Henry Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, uh, to uh, distance church and science from each other. But uh, the relationship was much more complicated, much more uh, subtle, much more intriguing, so that there are questions that my faith posed to my science that I struggled with. And likewise, questions posed the other way around that I struggle with and I still struggle with. But ultimately, those questions of Encouraged my enthusiasm both for science and for faith. And so for me, the relationship is more like a messy conversation. The type of thing we're having today, where you and I actually know different things, our priorities are different things, but actually we're having a conversation where we share common ground. Now, the thing about a conversation, it's not like a philosophical theory. The conflict theory works really well because it's simple. Mm. You can categorise things by it. You can communicate in a very simple way. Conversation's not like that. It's about questions. It's about stories. It's about uh, learning and insights. Um, And it's ongoing. It keeps going. It never shuts down. So if the the more
0: fruitful way of looking at it is rather like you and I sitting here together kind of having this conversation, can you give me an example of the ways in which... uh, science has contributed to kind of or ask questions of your kind of theological understanding, thinking particularly of the kind of that way
1: around? Yes, well one of the things that it's contributed is something that I think we need to relearn as Christians and that is that uh, many historians of science will point out that it was a Christian worldview that led to the growth of science itself and the dominant way of doing science up until the scientific revolution was that you sit down with a book of geometry and a book of logic and you put the two together and you say the world's probably concentric circles because uh, spheres are the most lovely geometric objects uh, with the earth at the centre and that's Aristotle's universe. Along comes Galileo and points his telescope at the sky and the interesting question is not what he saw through it but why he pointed his telescope at the sky in the first place? And the reason was that Galileo believed in a God who was free to create whatever he wanted to create. And if God's free in that way, not hindered by human logic, then the only way to find out what God has done is to look at it. The importance of empirical science as we now know it. So so there's something about the way that Christianity has shaped the very nature of science itself, for which I give thanks uh in terms of faith i think some of the difficult questions seem to be difficult questions to begin with but then i work through a solution so one of the obvious is how do i understand the first chapter of genesis and how does it relate mm-hmm. to a scientific account which says that the universe is 13.8 billion years old and uh, i think there i've come to a conclusion not on the basis of science by the way but provoked by science that in fact the first chapter of genesis is not meant to be read as a scientific textbook but as a theological text in fact for me the first chapter of genesis liturgy it's hymnody it's about a chapter which says don't worry about how god did it worry about just how great god is and join in creation singing his praises and then i think there are um scientific questions which I'm still worried about and still thinking through, and they particularly come under that classification of the problem of evil. Why are there certain things in the world which um, are negative towards innocent people, uh, where we can't immediately say, well, that's why God created such and such? And how do we reconcile those with belief in a loving God? And so uh, certain types of viruses, certain natural disasters. I mean, we can have a long conversation about those things, but ultimately I'll come to a conclusion and say, well, I don't know why some of these things happen. So you're almost saying that kind of
0: the, the empirical reality of that that you see through science forces you to ask some tough theological questions and, and in a sense, you need to hold them as questions because there is there is no
1: neat and tidy answer, but you're happy to hold them as questions within a theological worldview. Yes, absolutely. Spot on there. The, the first is that um, I want to reject neat and tidy answers mm-hmm. um, because they never do justice, particularly in that area, to the complexity of what's going on. But I also hold them uh, with the knowledge that there is a whole amount of evidence um, which points the other way. So as a scientist, I never got to a stage where a theory has 100% evidence for it and no percent against. Mm-hmm. You always have to weigh the evidence for and against. When it comes to the question of whether God is love, the uh, the evidence of the problem of evil points in one way. But I have to weigh that against a huge amount of evidence, which I see in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, which convinces me that God is love. And I hold those unanswered questions Mm. against the power of that evidence. Let's
0: think about a different type of evidence, David, the evidence of the stars and yeah. your own specialty, your own sort of scientific particular background is, is astrophysics. You and I were both at a lecture recently from an astrophysicist from NASA who was speaking uh, with extraordinary kind of insight and enthusiasm about the, the wonders of the uh, created universe. Tell me a little bit about how that specific interest has fed in that, your faith and created a, a healthy dialogue for you.
1: One of the great things about astrophysics, as my PhD supervisor once said, is that it's one of the areas of science where the theological questions are real uh, or easy to see. They're they're all there in every branch of science, but in astrophysics, there's a number of things. So let me tell you about a few things. First is… and. Uh, this is really profound, so I hope you're ready for it. I'm ready, yeah. The universe is big. Wow. Uh, now, you might be saying, why on earth am I interviewing this guy, simply saying that the universe is big? But it's not trivial. The universe has 100 billion galaxies, each of 100 billion stars or so. Um, and the Psalms, of course, speak about, uh, when I look at the heavens, the moon stars which you've created, what are human beings? So, one of the questions that uh, astronomy, and particularly my research, always raised was um, what's the place of human beings in all of this? The second thing is what uh, Paul Davis, great cosmologist, calls the Goldilocks enigma that things are just right to produce uh, intelligent based, carbon based life. Now, this isn't uh, a rehash of the design argument where we can take various things about the universe and argue that there must be a designer. But there are certain things about the law and circumstance of the universe. For instance, uh, the energy levels in the oxygen carbon atoms, which means that carbon is stable within our universe, um, that at least point two may be a deeper purpose to the universe. They're puzzling things which start a conversation. The third thing is the extraordinary experience of the intelligibility of science. Albert Einstein once said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. And one of the extraordinary things of sitting in a, uh, in a group of astrophysicists is this belief that the universe yields its information, its laws, which are simple and elegant and beautiful so easily. Well, maybe not so easily. Easy for you, David. Easy for some, and but not all the time. But that's an important thing to remind mm-hmm. ourselves, because the fourth thing is, uh, I was going to say, is something about all the universe. Let's be clear about this. Um, most of science is tedious, boring, and frustrating. I mean, let's not get a romantic view of science. It's about experiments that don't work. It's about research students who don't do what you tell them to do. It's about research councils don't give you enough money. It's about peer-reviewed journals where your colleagues don't see the brilliance of your particular uh, equations. But there are moments, and John Hapgood, former Archbishop of York and research chemist himself, talked about core look at that moments, where in the midst of all of that tedium, <laughs> in the midst of all of the diversity and complexity of the universe, you see these beautiful, simple, elegant laws and you go, wow, is that amazing? And that sense of awe has always stayed with me. Um, And it's a simple sense which you get if you look at some of the the pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope. But it's also there in the equations that dominate the Big Bang as well.
0: Can I pick up on the fourth and the first thing that you mentioned there, that sense of awe, but also with this sense of, Uh, picking up the words of the psalmist what a human being that you are mindful of them Mm -hmm. what does that dialogue between astrophysics and and theology have to say about anthropology about what it means to be human what 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 light is there there can i get you to say a little bit more about that
1: um the or sense is something which is about worship for me and therefore our theological task is always as dan hardy and others used to say a task which is about worship this isn't simply theological speculation uh, about uh, dry philosophical arguments. And the theological task is a liturgical task. If it doesn't lead you to um, go, call, look at that in terms of what God has done and who God is, then I don't think we're doing theology in the way that it's been designed to do theology. But there is a flip side of this, and this is, I think, where the psalmist is picking up, and that is a, a, a deeply questioning type of theology, which says, gosh, this is a fascinating question. What is the significance of human beings in such a vast universe? For some people, that's deeply disturbing, actually. Uh, for some people, um, you can't simply bring a logical argument to the table to explain it. It's interesting that the psalmist responds to it on the basis of revelation. And what I mean by that is the psalmist talks about the only answer to that question about what are human beings is that God has created them. God has crowned them, uh, repeating very much images from Genesis. So that um, you know who you are, because this God who has created the universe has spoken about creating the universe. That in this vast universe, the only way to know God and to know human beings is a very vibrant doctrine of revelation, that it is the God who speaks, the God who reveals, by which we know our place in the universe. David, you've
0: spoken so far about the way in which... Uh, science and theology can help us look at questions of origins and the structure of the universe. I've been listening recently to a program on BBC World Service called "The Sun, Our Star," um, exploring the nature of the sun. And, and one of the things we, of course, we know about the sun is that it's, is it is going to expand and one day uh, destroy the Earth. And, and if the universe is going to end in a in a heat death, can I take you to that? Looking forward to the end of things. Yes. I, I guess what are the sharp questions that science is kind of posing yeah. in theology about? what we call eschatology, the end yes.
1: times? Well, science is, is posing some really key questions. And unfortunately, the sun um, has only got about 4.5 billion years to go. Now, that means we're all right for dinner, but it is it does mean that the Earth is not going to be around for uh, forever. The Earth eventually will be swallowed up by the outer layers of the sun. But even more seriously, in the last 20 years or so, we've acknowledged that the universe, in fact, is... Accelerating at a rate, which is going to, uh, if not rip it apart, at least lead to a heat death of the universe, so that the uh, the energy in the universe is going to be smeared out more and more, becomes very cold to a state where life itself can't exist. This is deeply disturbing to science, because science is often grounded on the myth of human progress. Mm that actually we are making the world better and better and eventually we'll get to utopia. Here science is saying in an ultimate case, the universe is destined to die. It's destined to futility. Now, at that point, I think you then have to bring that into conversation with a Christian picture of the future, which is very different indeed, uh, and yet resonates with it. The Christian picture is of a new heaven and a new earth. This is the central category of hope within the New Testament. And uh, it's an acknowledgement that this creation is destined to futility. It's groaning, as Paul would say in Romans 8. But that God's purposes are not to take us out of this creation in a kind of you know, cosmic lifeboat, but that God's purposes are to transform this creation into a new heaven, a new earth, And the evidence and the example of that, for me, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So why do I believe that the universe has a hope to it, which goes beyond just the physical processes that we now describe? The reason is that 2,000 years ago, God uh, raised bodily Jesus, that there was an empty tomb. God took the very stuff of the dead body of Jesus and transformed it into a new body, which not only would not die again, but actually was triumphant over death. And the evidence for me as a scientist around the historical resurrection of Jesus is very strong indeed. I don't understand how it happened, but there's evidence to show me that it did, to convince me that it did. And Paul in 1 Corinthians, you remember, talks about uh, Jesus as the first Mm -hmm. fruit of that which is to come so that the model of the resurrection body of Jesus, which was in part the same as the one who died on the cross, but different as well, that model of the same but different will be true of the whole universe in terms of God's purposes and plans. Now, We'd need more than just a few minutes to talk about uh, what that means for physics, for space, time and matter, or when this will happen, and will it be about the processes of God, or will it be an event encompassing the second coming? These are really interesting questions, but the heart of it, I think, is that God's purposes go beyond the futility of the death of the universe into a new heaven and a new earth. David,
0: we've looked at how kind of science asks probing questions of theology about the beginning of time and at the end of time. Can I bring us to the present day Mm. and in particular to the questions that science helps us ask about our present experience of God, uh, less in worship and more in prayer? You've written on prayer and the relationship of prayer with some scientific insights.
1: What do you find compelling about the questions asked there? Well, they're questions which are compelling for me, Philip, because, you know, day by day, working as a scientist, I say my prayers. Um, And I don't like to live in silos. I don't like to live in, well, this is what I believe on a Sunday, and this is what I believe on Monday to Saturday. And what's interesting about um, trying to ask questions where Jesus is Lord of Science and how that relates to prayer is that the scientific worldview of the 20th century is now radically different from what most theology is built on. Now, to overgeneralize, most theology, it seems to me, in the Western context, is all built upon Isaac Newton's clockwork universe. Newton, uh, with the laws of motion and the laws of gravity, produced a universe which was picturable, and predictable. You could tell what the universe was going to be like in the future, and indeed the past. And uh, you could uh, model this on a clock, an intricate design, which was predictable, and you could picture it. And you, you wind it up, and it, it goes in the same way, and you can predict exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Trouble is that theology swallowed that hook, line, and sinker. The first thing it said, oh, this is really good because this talks about a divine clockmaker. Mm. Uh, Maybe we can try and prove God through the intricate design. And in the enthusiasm that theology took that on board, it forgot that there were one or two things that came out of it. The first, of course, was if God is the perfect designer, then why would God want to meddle in the mechanism? I mean, God becomes the one who starts the universe off, but has nothing more to do with it. And that led to a movement which you find actually shaping the 19th century and particularly some of the um, demythologizing of the New Testament where people said something like this. If God cannot work by miracles because he doesn't push his fingers into the predictable mechanism, then miracles aren't possible. And if miracles aren't possible, then what have we got in the New Testament? Well, let's reinterpret the New Testament miracle stories as stories that are created by the early church to say something about who Jesus was, but they didn't actually happen. Now, all of that is dependent on Isaac Newton. And the trouble with Isaac Newton is that he only explained a small fraction of what the universe is about. In fact, we now know that most of the universe isn't like a predictable clock at all, uh, at an atomic level, everything's dominated by quantum theory, and that has unpredictability built into it. And at a macro level, everyday level, and we know this because uh, uh, we can't give perfect weather forecasts, there are many systems in the world where we know the laws of physics, but they aren't predictable. The same way there's a degree of openness to the universe. Now, at the very least, at the very least, that's a simple reminder that Isaac Newton just explained a very, very small part of the universe. The universe actually isn't like a clock at all. It's much more exciting, much more subtle. Now, hear me right, I'm not saying that this is where God works, that God has to work just in quantum theory, or God has to work just in chaos theory, like the weather. What I am saying is that actually the way that God works may be much more interesting and much more... Nuanced than the way that we've often put God against the mechanistic universe. And what I'm interested in is finding how my prayer life relates to a God who sustains the laws of physics, a God who might work in the freedom and uncertainty of quantum theory, a God who certainly might have the freedom to transcend his own laws at times, and a God who actually... Will use human beings as agents of change as well. And the trouble, if I may say, with most Western theology is, which is a sweeping statement, but go on, make it. uh, Thank you, is our need to simplify things too much, Mm. to make models that we can understand and that we can teach in a classroom and we can say, well, that's the way that God works. In fact, um, if God is personal, One of the things we need to remind ourselves of is that actually God may be much more complex in His working in the world in His response to prayer than our simple philosophical models often allow us to.
0: So prayer might be engaging with that complexity in ways that we've yet to. um, We
1: don't. We're not going to get to the bottom of it. No, but we know that, don't we, in our own prayer lives when we say our prayers, uh, when sometimes prayers are answered, sometimes prayers aren't. Sometimes um, uh, you hear of Christian prayers being answered in the most remarkable ways. And sometimes you hear the deep struggle of those who've prayed for friends who've been ill and there hasn't been an answer. Or as Pete Gregg sometimes puts it, God is on mute. Um, if, if you're serious about prayer, you know the complexity of the experience of prayer. So it's not surprising that... Uh, trying to understand that would lead to a complex picture of how God works in the
0: world. Thank you, David. Some of our listeners will be uh, people from a scientific background, others won't be. What would you say more generally as an invitation for people from whatever kind of academic or interest they have to keep kind of probing the relationship between science and theology? I I guess I'm asking, how will it help their journey of faith, perhaps speaking about how it's helped yours?
1: Um, I think, first of all, that uh, I think if you're a Christian, then Jesus is Lord uh, over every part of your life means that if you're a scientist, Jesus needs to be Lord over your science as much as anything else. And uh, so day by day, you work out your discipleship within the context that God has led you to work in. And so I always want to be asking the questions of how science and faith work together. Indeed, within the Christian churches, I'm convinced there's a whole number of people who actually know how to answer that question because they live as scientists day by day. Sometimes as a church as a whole, we don't listen to them. The second thing is I want to see science as a gift from God. Now, often we see science as threat or we see science somehow as a competitor to God. Um, we're shaped by a story in the Old Testament, which is of the Tower of Babel, which sees technology, or some people interpret it as technology, against God. In fact, it wasn't the technology, it was the wanting to be like God, to exercise the kind of power of God, and to put our trust not in God, but in our technology. But to see science and technology as gift is very important. And I think that means that in churches, we need to represent that. And what I mean by that is, uh, I go to some churches uh, where if a young person says, the Lord's called me to missionary Bible college, the congregation go fantastic. The young person's brought to the front, people lay hands on them, and they're given a big check to help them with their academic fees. But if a 17-year-old says, I'm going to do chemistry at university, I wonder if the same church would bring that person to the front, lay hands on them, and give them a big check to help them with their fees. I think we should, because those who study science, who learn science, who use science, do so because science is a gift. And then I think thirdly, that means that when we talk about science, and particularly its ethical consequences, um, we start saying, "Thank you, God. Let me use this gift wisely," rather than, "Let me control all of those evil scientists who are hell-bent on destroying the world, because that's what science fiction movies mm-hmm. say. I think if we see ourselves as gift, then we'll want to be, uh, as Christians at the forefront of scientific advances. And at the forefront of some of the very difficult ethical questions, whether it be in genetics or artificial intelligence or questions about the beginning of life or the end of life, um, uh, questions about the use of energy and uh, these type of questions, we'll want to encourage Christians to be in those very difficult areas, those grey areas at times acting as salt and light as Christians in the world. And again, as churches, I think we've got a chance to pray for folk like that and to pray regularly for our scientists, uh, our science teachers, uh, our science students. I think those things.
0: Final question, David. This is about you as a individual uh, follower of Jesus and, and scientist yourself. What one thing are you learning at the moment or are you looking forward to learning about that brings science and your faith into dialogue?
1: Gosh, that's a really interesting question. I suppose I've got four or five things on the table at the moment. But this is like a desert uh, island disc and you can only tell me one of them. <laughs> the thing that fascinates me most at the moment scientifically is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I think we're in a period at the moment where Um, We're discovering planets outside our solar system. We're landing um, uh, satellites and spacecraft in and around Mars and drilling under its surface. Um, We're going to establish bases on the Moon and Mars in not many years' time. And I think what we'll discover about life will be very interesting. Are we alone or not? And what does that mean? Does God have an interest in uh, the whole of creation? And is there other intelligent life, creation? And what does that mean for human beings? Um, And why are we so fascinated with life elsewhere in the universe? Now, one of the interesting things, Philip, about this is that it's been Christians who've been at the forefront of speculation about other worlds. Um, Many people think, gosh, no. Now, I would love to be in a position uh, where we get some data from Mars, uh, which says we're not alone in the universe. I'd love to be in a position when the little green women and little green men arrive, um, as long as it's not Donald Trump who has to meet them. And I'd love to be in a, in a position where actually we can look at that and say, this is more of the glory of God uh, and isn't a God amazing? That's a great place to end. David,
0: thank you very much indeed for coming on Talking Theology. Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmerhal Durham. Cranmer Hall is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmerhall.com.